Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and to study your word. We ask you to guide and lead as we look at the various heroes of the faith and, and the directions that you've taken them in and help us to be encouraged by that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Hebrews chapter 11, we're continuing in the hall, hall of Fame, Roll Call of Faith, however you want to, whatever title you've heard it called. Uh, we're going to be starting at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried offered up Isaac and he that had received the promise offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said that in Isaac shall be your seed shall your seed be called accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from whence also he received him in a figure by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come by faith Jacob when he was dying blessed both the sons of jo uh, Joseph and worshiped leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment of his bones. So we're going to stop there because we've got quite a bit of stories to catch up right there on all of this. So here we have Abraham. And we talked about this. We left off with Abraham that God had promised him a child, and he got a child in his old age. I mean, he was only 100 years old when, when Isaac was born. And basically, God said that Isaac was the child that he was going to accept. Now, Abraham had a child previously with Hagar, and that was the child of the flesh, and God rejected Ishmael. And Ishmael, when Abraham prayed for him, he was, he was made to be a great nation. And then we know that Abraham had several children after the death of Sarah, when he married Keturah, and he ended up having a dozen children with her when he was really old. <laughs> um, and he didn't count, and God didn't count any of those children because they weren't from Sarah, and he didn't count Ishmael because he wasn't from Sarah. <laughs> so, um, and this is, but when God came to Abraham, he said, I want you to offer Isaac. Now, this had to have been something very hard, and I don't know that I could have done this one because if I was with uh, God, I would have told him, well, God, you don't accept human sacrifices. What are you wanting me to offer my son for? Uh, but Abraham took Isaac on a three-day journey up to Mount Moriah. And we've talked about this before. Mount Moriah is where Jerusalem is, the mountain that Jerusalem sits on. And Mount Moriah is where Calvary and the temple is all on in that area. So Abraham took Isaac, his only son, the son of promise, and was willing to sacrifice him, even though God said, this is your son that your seed is going to be provided for. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that the reason was that he was convinced that if he offered that son, God would resurrect him. And that's a lot of faith. You know, that is a lot of faith to have uh, 
you know, this is the son that has been promised. This is the son of promise. This is where my seed is going to come from. God, you're telling me to offer him as a sacrifice. So therefore, I am going to take him up on that mountain and I'm going to sacrifice him, even though he's the son of promise. And this was a great thing. And this is what it said. When he was tried, you know, Isaac was his, was his son. And he loved his son. And God said, this is one that's going to be the, the, going to take the blessing. He's going to have the, you know, the Abrahamic covenant applied to him. And Abraham went up onto that mountain and was ready to sacrifice him. And if you remember the story, he had the knife up. He had bound Isaac. And contrary to most, you know, if you've been in church all your life, you see this picture of Isaac being a little boy. But we think that he was probably closer to 30 years old when he was taken up on that mountain. He could have overpowered his dad in a heartbeat, uh, especially when his dad's over 100 years old. Uh, you know, he could have easily overpowered him, and yet he was submitted to his father as well. And that is when the ram was provided to him, and God says, now I know that you, that you trust me and... And that is where Abraham turned to him and said, you are Jehovah Jireh, God, my provider. And that is what this story is all about when he says, the testing of Abraham. And that's a pretty powerful story. It's one that I would have failed, you know, because I know, because I would have said, God, I don't understand this. You're asking me to offer a human sacrifice. You don't, you don't take human sacrifices. And I probably would have failed it because, you know, just for that reason, um, but Abraham knew God's voice so much that he was willing to say, God, I don't understand this, but I'm going to offer and you're going to provide. And then he goes on to say, and then he goes, you know, and, the, and the comment here is that you know, he accounted that God was able to raise him from the dead. So he goes, okay, the, the commentary here in the scriptures is, Abraham was sure that God would raise Isaac back from the dead if he killed him because he was the child of promise. And then I love it, what he says, from whence he received him in, in a figure. Okay, Isaac is a picture of Jesus Christ being offered on Mount Moriah. Uh, and they returned three days later, so that was a resurrection picture as well. So it's a great picture of Jesus. He's being taken up by his father, the, the only begotten son, to be sacrificed and then three days later comes back alive, back to, back to home. Um, so we have a picture of Jesus there. I never thought of that way. <laughs> so Isaac is that picture of Jesus in that area. Mount Moriah is the same place where Cal, uh, Golgotha is at. Right. So same place. Same place. Or same region anyway. Foreshadow, foreshadowing, a symbol, foreshadowing symbol of the crucifixion where, because Abraham said, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And it's quite interesting terminology because he didn't say God will provide a sacrifice, but he says God will provide himself a sacrifice when he was talking about Isaac on there. So Abraham was actually being the prophet that on this mountain at one point, God will sac be sacrificed here. 
and same place that Jesus was sacrificed at. So it was very interesting. Interesting. There's so much, so much in that story that we didn't want to get into all of it. But it is a very unique statement that was made. Very unique picture and symbol uh, of the sac the future sacrifice of God on that mountain for the sins of the world. And so that was this picture. And and Abraham had faith enough to say, "Okay, God, you promised that Isaac's going to be the seed." And you're telling me to go sacrifice him. I'm going to go sacrifice him. And God, somehow you're going to have to raise him back to life and, and put him back in here because your promise was that he's the seed. That would have been very hard to comprehend. You know, all right, God, I don't understand any of this, but you've made a promise. You're going to be held to your promise. And I'm going to see what you're going to do. So, I mean, what do you think that happened? Huh? Well, the reason that it would happen mostly is that it's a symbol, symbol to us of the future sacrifice of the father of his son. He didn't know that, but he was obedient enough to God to step forward and make that. It helps us understand if we're absolutely sure that God is telling us to do something, we need to step out and do it. Uh, and like I say, I would have failed this one because I know God doesn't take human sacrifices. So I would go, God, I don't understand this. There's no way this could be you talking to me because you're asking for a human sacrifice. And I would have failed that. <laughs> I would have failed it. Yeah. That's why I think, that's why I said before, they had a lot more better faith, stronger faith than Yeah. Certain of them did. <laughs> Abraham had a great faith. He left his country at a time when people did not leave their country. He went out away from his family at a time when, when people did not. Abraham had a lot of faith. And he had a lot of faith to be able to take you know, Isaac up on a mountain, knowing that God was going to have to do a miracle for, this to, for the rest of the promise to be, a, to be, an, uh, be fulfilled. So, but it was a huge amount of faith. And then... It says in verse 20, And by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. All right? And if you remember the story, we don't have a lot of stories about Isaac. Isaac is kind of left out. Abraham takes him up on the mountain. Uh, he loves Jake, uh, Esau instead of Jacob. Jacob was the child of promise, but he loved Esau. Uh, and if you remember in his older age when he's going, getting blind, uh, he's all set to give the, the blessing to Esau, even though uh, his wife had been told that the younger Jacob would have been the one that's going to get the blessing. And if you remember the story, she arranged for Jacob to go in and pretend to be Esau and get the blessing from, from uh, Jacob, uh, from uh, Isaac. He gets the blessing. And then has to run for his life because Esau was not happy about, about that blessing being put on him and said, you know, just wait till dad dies. When he dies, you're gonna di I'm going to kill you. Uh, and Esau was the type of guy that could have done it. He was the hunter. He was the man's man. And Jacob was basically mama's boy. <laughs> he liked to hang out in the, in the camp. He liked to do the cooking. He liked to do, you know, do all the more cerebral 
type things, and he was a little afraid of his brother, <laughs> for, for rightful, rightfully so, because his brother was very angry with him. And he had already tricked him out of the birthright before that. And if you remember the birthright, the firstborn male in the family would get a double portion of the inheritance. Now people go, well, what's so big a deal about that? Well, it was a lot of money in this case, but it was also a responsibility when you got the, first, the firstborn's right because that double portion wasn't for you to spend on yourself. That second portion was you, for you basically to lay aside and when your younger brother or sister got into trouble financially, you were to take that double portion and help them get back on their feet and you were the patriarch of the family and you were to take that extra portion to support them. Now, most of them did not do that all the time. They kind of used it upon themselves, but they also had that right to, and responsibility for taking care of their siblings. So it was a big deal to receive the right of the firstborn and the obligations that came along with it. So. Do you remember that story? He was making porridge one day or soup or whatever it was. Uh, I think it was red, red bean soup or red soup or something. His brother comes in from hunting, having not gotten anything all day long, says, give me a bowl of your soup. He goes, no, it's mine. <laughs> he says, well, I'm famished. I'm going to die. And he goes, well, what will you give me for, for the soup? You know, and he offers him all kinds of things. You know, I want the birthright. And he goes, what good's a birthright to me if I'm going to die? He'd only been hunting for one day. I mean, it's not like he was going to die, but he was hungry coming in from the field. And how many times do we feel like we're, you know, starving to death? It's only been three hours since we ate, but we're starving to death. You know, that's the kind of place where he was at at this point. You know, he really wasn't that hungry. He wasn't going to die, but that's how little he thought of that birthright. And so he sold it. To, to Jacob, and then Jacob stole his blessing. So Esau pretty much hated his brother. Uh, and that's what this is on there. But Isaac blesses both of them. He does give Jacob, uh, uh, Esau a blessing. Now he gives the better blessing to Jacob because he thought that he was blessing Esau and says, you're gonna, your brother's going to serve you. You're going to be the master. You're gonna, all, all the things that you do are going to be good. And it was a really fancy blessing, giving him everything. Isaac's half-brother? Yeah. Ishmael. Ishmael was kicked out of the family. Right. I mean, uh, he was allowed to. He was allowed to have Ishmael because of free will. He, well, the consequences for disobedience are, are followed through. Yeah. He was disobedient. He didn't wait on God. And in the flesh, he had Ishmael. And then Ishmael begat most of the Arabian peoples <laughs> that had been a thorn in the side of Ish Israel ever since. Um, so yes, it was free will that caused it. The, the free will that did disobedience. And this is one of the things, oftentimes people will go, well, if God is so powerful, he can stop 
things from happening, and yes, he could stop things from happening. But if we have free will, and we do, we're going to do things that can bring harm to us and others. Now, this is a hard, hard area to understand. Why will God let free will work that way out? You know, and I've had people go, well, this is that and the other thing. And I've gone, well, you know what? Let's start with a prayer that God will stop all things from happening that are bad. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. I go, good, I'm going to pray that you cannot do anything that you want to do anymore. What? You know, well, obviously, if you can do what you want to do and it's going to cause pain and harm to other people, you're the problem. And as soon as you start making them understand that side of it, that doesn't sound so good to them to have God be able to stop all things bad from happening to people. Sin has consequence. And God has allowed that to happen. Yes, he could have created robots that just automatically obeyed him. But is there any true fellowship with a robot? Somebody who has to do what they're told. Now, that would be you're in a marriage and everything you do, that person just has to accept and just be perfect and accept everything that you're doing. It's just there's no, there would be no love, no real feelings there because they're being forced to do it. And that's not what God created man to be. He did not want, want a bunch of robots that had to love him, had to obey him, because there would have been no fellowship in that. And this, the downside of it, of course, is that when man fail, evil comes into the world, consequences for those evil acts come, and sometimes people get hurt. And sometimes, quote-unquote, innocent people get hurt. But from a fallen nature, there is no such thing as an innocent person. Now, there are some that aren't quite as evil as others. There are people that aren't, you know, the ones that, that seem to deserve it from our perspective. But God says, this is what's going to happen because of the free will of man to do wrong. And Ishmael was one of those cases. Abraham had a son, you know, uh, outside of God's plans, and Israel has suffered. Then he has 12 more sons after Sarah dies with Keturah, and they all are also nations in Europe, uh, 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 the Arabian Peninsula that have caused trouble for, for, is for Israel. So Abraham has all these kids, you know, 13 of which are not part of the promise, and have been a thorn in the side of Israel ever since because he did things his way. And in this case, it was long-term consequences, not just his lifetime, but the entire life of the nations that respond from him. And so this is something that we need to understand that sin has consequences, and when we do something wrong... We, get, we pay for it, but oftentimes others pay for that sin as well. And sometimes they pay worse than we did. And this is the hardship about this. This is the hard thing about it. And this is why people go, well, God should stop all of that. All right, well, I understand what they're saying, and I can understand their, the hardship and the, the thoughts process of that. But again, if God was to stop it, 
then he's really making people just automatons that just do what they're told to do, and there's no fellowship in that, in that area. And that's not what he was seeking for. And it's hard. It's hard to comprehend. It's hard to figure out. Then we go, God, you knew all this was going to happen. Why in the world would you have done it in the first place? You know, he knew man was going to fall when he created us. He knew that Jesus was going to die on the cross for the, man, the sins of man. And yet he created mankind knowing that we were going to make all kinds of mistakes and that a lot of innocent people, quote unquote, were going to get hurt in the process of the fall of man. I can't comprehend it, but God has a plan through all of this. And for real love to be real love, it has to be something that can be rejected. And this is why you've got a statement, you know, um, you know, to see if somebody really loves you, set, you know, set them free. And if they return, they're yours. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of what God did. He set it up so that man could choose or not choose to be obedient. And of course, man chose not to, and so the son had to die. And then people could make choices to be children of God from that point on. And it's hard. It's hard to comprehend. It's hard to understand. Hard to understand how a God that knows all things from the beginning to the end would have done it. But also, he knows it from the beginning to end. He knows more about what it, what's happening than we do. We see only thing, see things only from a small portion of time, and we can't comprehend why in the world God would you do something like this. I can't. You know, I'm, I'm not all that smart, but I can't. I still can't figure out why God would do what He did to create man, and yet He did. And I know that he's a good and perfect God, so he has a plan that's good and perfect, even though I can't understand it. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than ours. And we can't ever understand what he's, what he's done or why he's done things. And so this is part of what's, what's going to happen through all of this. But back to this, Isaac blesses Jacob and Esau. Verse 20 says, 21 says, And by faith Jacob, when he was dying blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped leaning upon his staff. Now, if you're not familiar with this story, just before Joseph dies, just before Jacob dies, excuse me, Joseph brings Manasseh and Ephraim with him into, his, into their grandfather's tent, and he presents them with the oldest on Jacob's right hand and the youngest on Jacob's left hand. And if you remember the story, Jacob crosses his hands <laughs> to bless Joseph's children. Joseph kind of gets mad at him because now he's putting his right hand, the, the hand of approval, on the youngest child instead of the oldest child. And he goes, no, father, you know, this one is the oldest. And he goes, no, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> And he blesses the older one, uh, the younger one, with the greater blessing. And if you remember the story, Jacob says, these are not your children anymore. They are my children. <laughs> Jacob seemed to know that God was going to take one of the 12 children that he had to be his. 
because the Levites are going to be taken out of Jacob's line and be made God's people so that they're not technically the children of Israel anymore because God says, I've taken them. And Joseph gets two portions because if you remember, if you look at the lists of, of the tribes of Israel, you're going to see Ephraim and Manasseh listed in all of those listings because the Levites are pulled out. So there's 12 tribes of Israel, two of which belong to Joseph. And that's what this is referring to at this point. That story, if you're toward the end of Genesis, we read Jacob blesses the children of Joseph and says, these two aren't yours anymore, they're mine. And says, they're my children. Um, a lot of times God shows the youngest child, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of times where God chooses the youngest for where the humans say it's supposed to be the oldest. Jacob was the younger by minutes or seconds or minutes uh, because they were twins. Uh, but yeah, God take the youngest frequently in the scriptures. In the scriptures, Esau was born and Jacob had his hand on his brother's heel, which is why he got the name Jacob heel grabber, uh, you know, to, as his name, because he had a hold of his brother. So literally they were, a lot of times twins can be hours apart. These ones were minutes apart. Uh, and the... Um, Mother was told that you've got twins because she was in really hard labor because the twins were fighting from the moment they were in the womb. Uh, they were not good brothers. So they, they apparently fought in the womb because she's going, something's wrong. And God says, there's two nations fighting in, in, inside you. Um, and the younger will, the, the older will serve the younger. So she already knew that she had told her husband and yet her husband wanted to bless the older. Um, so there was I'm trying to, you know, I'm hoping I'm making some of these stories more alive to you, maybe even going through things maybe you never noticed or heard of as we go through these stories, because these are the important stories. These are the key to what's going on and on, on what's going on. Why are these people blessed? Why are they looked so special? We don't know a lot about Isaac, but Isaac did bless his sons and set the stage for them to go forward, and he's considered a prophet. Jacob, you know, Jacob's kind of, kind of a character, and we skip most of his life, and just said the only thing they're looking at on this is, yeah, one day he blessed his son, uh, blessed Joseph's sons. We don't get into all the, the downside, of him, and that's a good message to us. Jacob was a scoundrel for most of his life, all right? He was... If you know anybody who is the person who never loses a, a deal, that's kind of where Jacob was. Now, he, he met Uncle Laban, who was the same guy, kind of a guy, a guy who never lost any, any deals, and they had all kinds of little battles between themselves. But I know people that, you know, they get the better of every situation, and this is Jacob. He pretty much gets the better of the situations, and he's a... a 
scoundrel, a cheat, uh, uh, and all that we all were told about him is he blessed Joseph's children. I love that. What is God focused on? The good side of what was done in these people's lives. I think this is important for us. What does God focus on in our life? Not the, all the downside, even though we're told about Jacob's downside in, in the scriptures, and there's a lot of you know, lessons to be learned there. But when God talks about him in the uh, roll call of faith, it's like, this is what he did right. He blessed Joseph's children and made them part of the tribes of Israel. I think that is wonderful for us to understand when God speaks about us, it's going to be the good side. You know, I, I love listening to testimonies for people, on, but with the part that I like the most is many people when they give a testimony talk about how bad they were, how bad they were, and how God changed their life. I like it from the time that God changed their life to what has God done for the, with them since that more than I care about what they've done in the past. Now, I understand, you know, that that is to show you how great God is and all of that, but I get bothered by a long, long list of all the bad that they did, and, and, and then God changed me. Now, if you continue with just as much on the other side, I, it's okay. But if you, if you spend, you know, four or five minutes talking about how bad you were, God saved me, and, that, and I'm done, I have a problem with that. Now, God knows us from the time he saved us onward and says, this is what I care about. I care about what you have done right. All that rest of the stuff, not a big deal. And we need to be able to think about that even in ourselves. You know, we can use the bad to be a hook. You know, when somebody goes, well, I just can't get over this, whatever it might be. Well, you know what? I had a problem in that area too, and God got hold of me and changed my life. Use it for that hook, but don't dwell about the past. There's nothing good about our life before Christ. No. And maybe we were, quote unquote, a good person. There are people out there that really aren't that evil. They didn't go out drinking and smoking and, and sleeping around. They were relatively good by human standards but there's still nothing good about the life before Christ when Christ comes in and changes the way we are. And when we look at each of these statements coming in, God looks at what they've done right. What they have done right, not the things they did wrong. Even though they're recorded in the scriptures for us to learn that God uses those that have faults. And I like that God shows us that he uses the people that have faults. Because that's good news for me. Because I have lots of faults. And I'm glad that he uses people with faults. And so this is what we're looking at as we hear. And then it says in verse 22, By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandments concerning his bones. If you don't know this part of the story, Joseph said that, when you leave Egypt, take my bones with you. He did not want his bones to be left in Egypt. Now, you've got to think about this. He's the number two person in charge of Egypt. 
What was going to happen to his bones by the Egyptians? There would have been some kind of pyramid or some kind of great temple or some, some great place for his bones to go. He's number two man. In some of those temples and, and burial sites in Egypt, they were just because they were the chief architect or the chief, the chief commanding officer. I mean, they weren't even, you know, Pharaoh or number two. So you know that if he hadn't said this, there would have been some great building made for him, the number two man of Egypt. And he goes, take my bones with you. He wanted to be buried in the promised land. And it's kind of an interesting thing. It was one of those crazy questions I had long, long ago, but I still remembered it because I got it wrong. And it goes, how does, how does Genesis end? And the answer they wanted was in a coffin in Egypt. That's how Genesis ends. Joseph is put into a coffin in Egypt to be carried away when the children of Israel leave. And so a couple hundred years later when they leave, it says, tells us in Genesis, uh, in Exodus, that they took the bones of Joseph with them. Now, I don't know how big a coffin he had after a hundred after years or so, but they're carrying the bones of Joseph with them into the promised land, which means they're also carrying his bones around for 40 years in the wilderness before they finally get into the promised land so they could take him up to the one piece of property that they owned already to bury his body, or the bones. So this was Joseph saying, there is going to be a time when you return back to the promised land. I want to be buried there. These are faith statements that people were making because there was no reason for them to want to leave where they're at. They were in Egypt. They had the best jobs taking care of the Pharaoh's flocks. They had the best land for, in, in Goshen for for uh, whatever they wanted to do, farming, animal raising, whatever they wanted to do, they had the best land. The number two man had protected them, and he's saying, okay, I'm going to die, and I want you guys, when, when you go back, when you leave Egypt, take my bones with you. He understood something that they did not. You know, they were happy where they were at. But Joseph understood God promised you the promised land. He didn't promise you Egypt. And he brought them there. He brought them there to take care of them and to help them. And yet what he did was put them into slavery for, many, for, many, for three generations because of bringing them down to protect them and help them. So again, we see the picture of we're doing it man's way, getting you out of where you belong and bringing you down here, and then there's going to be a consequence for doing it the wrong way. Now, Joseph saw that he was put into place and he understood that he was there to help protect his people, his family, but he could just as easily have sent food to them. He's number two man in Egypt, he could have sent caravans back and forth to his parents, you know, to dad and his brothers to keep them alive in the promised land where they belonged rather than bringing them to Egypt. 
And the consequences for bringing them to Egypt was that they went into slavery for two, gener for two and a half, three generations. Heavy consequence for not obeying completely. You know, and this is, the, but again, it's not mentioned in there. It's not, that's not the side that's brought out all the time. And this is the thing I keep bringing up to us. There's consequences for our sins. Yes, God will work everything out for good in the long run, but there's consequences that can be painful to us, our children, our families, long term. Many of my decisions I saw impacting my kids as they, as they grew up. You know, there's been a couple decisions that I made that weren't the best decisions for them. They were okay for me, but they weren't good for the kids. You know, and some of them weren't even all that great for me. <laughs> so we look at this and say, yes, the freedom to do is there. You know, but God will give the consequences. We have a freedom to choose what we want, but the consequences are not what we get to choose. We get the consequences that come with that choice. So here we have Joseph is being mentioned. Verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months by his parents because they saw that he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, the saying to do, were drowned. So we'll stop there for a moment. All right, so now we're switching over to, to Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a proper or a, a proper is not the right word, but uh, a special child. Now, that's kind of an interesting thing because all parents think their children are special. Uh, but they saw something more in him. All right. Moses had two older siblings, Aaron and Miriam, but there was something special they saw in Moses. Now, this was also at a time when Pharaoh was afraid of all the uh, numbers of Jewish people being born. And he had given a commandment that, that all of the ch male children were to be thrown into the Nile River. Uh, didn't work very well because he had, the Hebrews said, no, we're not throwing our children into the Nile River. Then his commandment was to the midwives, when you're, when you're delivering these uh, babies, if you find that it's a male, kill the baby. Now, can you have a picture of that? Doctors and, and, and midwives and nurses have had the same per, you know, desire forever. You know, uh, to do no harm to their patients. And here is Pharaoh telling the midwives, uh, if, you, if, it's a, if it's a boy, kill it. 
Now, that's not going to go over well with them, and it didn't. They didn't kill the babies. And Moses' family had this baby boy, and they, was, they considered that him special, and they hid him for three months. Now, it's a long time to, help, to hide an infant, because uh, infants have a tendency to cry when they're not supposed to. <laughs> Uh, and he got to an age where they couldn't hide him, and they put him, as you know, into a basket, oftentimes called an ark. They put pitch on the inside, outside, and then they did what Pharaoh told him. They put him in the river. They didn't quite follow his directions exactly, but they followed it to the letter. They said, put him in the river. They put him in the river. Um, he never told them to put him in an ark, but <laughs> they put him in a basket, he floats down the river to where Pharaoh's daughter was with her maids taking, taking a bath, getting cleaned up, and they see this little basket floating down the river, and they go check it out. And just as she opens it, the baby cries, and she falls in love with this baby <laughs> and adopts this baby. And, you know, what a picture of this is that they hid him and it says they weren't afraid of the commandment of the king or Pharaoh. Now, I'm sure they were to a degree, but this one says it wasn't. And I'm going to take it for what it says. And then he is adopted into the very house of Pharaoh. And if you know the story, Miriam is following, making sure what's happening to the basket, because they're kind of curious, you know, we're going to put it in the basket. What's going to happen to it? Is it floating out to the Red Sea and uh, to the Mediterranean Sea, and we're never going to see him again. And as soon as Pharaoh's daughter gets the baby, Miriam shows up and talks to her. Now, you've got to put yourself in this, this thought process. The Pharaoh's daughter is having a bath, so the soldiers aren't real close. They've got to be close enough to not see her, but close enough to defend her if something happens. She's got all of her maidservants around who aren't supposed to let anybody else get to her. It's all, and Miriam goes straight to Pharaoh's daughter and says, uh, do you need a nurse for this baby? And she goes, yes, I need a nurse for this baby. And guess who Miriam recommends for the nurse? His own mom. <laughs> and she gets to nurse him and then return him back to Pharaoh's daughter. Which means, and most people believe during this time, because we've got to remember children back then were breastfed a lot longer than they are in today's world. Anywhere from three to five years they were breastfed. All right, we get them out, of, get them out as soon as possible in today's world, you know, one to two years old and, you know, get them onto food. That wasn't true then. So she was able to take Moses and train him teach him the ways of the Hebrew people during that period of time so that he knew who he was. Now, Pharaoh and them are going to change his teachings as much as possible because from that point on, he's put into school and training to become Pharaoh. Uh, and he was in line to become Pharaoh. He was, and this is one of the things that I have a problem. When he tells God, I'm not worthy to lead these people, he was lying. He had been trained already for 40 years in Egypt to be a ruler. 
God had already specially trained him to be a military and person who could make decisions for governmental leadership. And he was trained. Now, he had a temper and all of that, which we might talk about later on, but you know, he had some problems, but he was well-trained to lead a nation. And all because of being put into a basket, floating down the river, and being adopted into Pharaoh's family, and being raised as a prince of Egypt. A prince of Egypt, one of the number one nations at that point. They, they were the empire at that time. And he was raised up to be trained to be a leader of the number one empire. You know, that wasn't, a, that wasn't his training was not going to be slipshod. He was going to be trained in accounting and in, and in you know, directing the farmers and the military and, and diplomacy and all of these things that he would have been taught to do. And so he was well trained and prepared for when it was time to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And then it goes in verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Now this is something that was kind of interesting. He, it says here, he chose to turn his back on Egypt. This is a great thing for us to consider. Do we choose to obey God rather than to enjoy the short-term worldly activities? Now, hopefully when we're Christians, that's our decisions. Before that, no, it's not our decisions in most, in, in most cases. We're, we want to have eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die, and we want to have as much fun as possible, quote-unquote fun by the world standards. The one thing I enjoy being a Christian is the, that I actually enjoy being a Christian and doing what God wants. I think it's funny when you start talking to people and they talk about how, what a wonderful time they had on the, on the weekend or the holiday. What did you do? I don't remember. But everybody told me I had a really good time. Oh, okay. Uh, but you don't remember what you did. You don't remember how much you embarrassed yourself and... You know, did you see the pictures they took, especially in today's world? Uh, you know, it is wonderful to be able to remember what you did and know that it's got long-term eternal consequences. Moses turned his back on Egypt. He went out knowing that he, who he was and what his background was. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and kills the Egyptian. Now, that is hard to understand. He could have just commanded the guy to stop, but I think his temper really got the worst of him. You're beating one of my brothers. Uh, and he got, and his temper took over. And if you really get to study this, the life of Moses, Moses had a terrible temper got him into trouble more than once. You know, got him into trouble. He, he destroyed the com Ten Commandments that God wrote. When he comes off the mountain and sees them in an orgy, and he breaks the Ten Commandments that God writes and has to go back on the mountain and write the new ones himself. 
he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it because he's so angry at the people. And you can see his anger all through the scriptures. Uh, you know, his anger so much that he was killed somebody to defend. He had the power to have told that guard to stop. All he had to do was speak and that guard would have stopped. Could have had the guard thrown into prison if he didn't. And yet his anger got the better of him. And so he, but he chose to suffer. He was in line for the crown prince. I don't know if he was the crown prince, but he was in line to be prince. All he had to do is ignore, the, ignore, ignore what was going on to the Hebrew people. He could, he could have even justified it. When, I'm, when I am king and I'm in charge, I'll free them. You know, he could have justified it. Well, there's going to come a time when I'll be in a place of influence and I can, I can release these guys and send them back home and I'll be doing a great, great thing for them. How easy is it for us to justify our actions in our, in our own understanding, our own trust in ourselves and our own understanding? He could have done it and he says, no, I'm going to turn my back. I'm going to, I'm going to align with my people and become one with them. And I love this because then Paul here goes in verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ, of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of that reward. Now he's turning it into a spiritual thing. He understood that there was a greater riches in obedience. Now I'm not absolutely sure that you know, Moses fully con was cognizant of what he was doing at that point. But you know, this is kind of an interesting thing. When we turn our back on the world, what are we really saying? This is not my home. I want what God has in store for me. God has a greater plan for me, and I want to trust him. I want to trust his plan, not my plan. Because it's easy for us to take our plan and you know, justify the wrong decisions. We've all done it at some point. Well, I did this because. Well, and usually if we say it often enough, we might even convince ourselves. But usually we know that what we're doing is wrong and we know that it was wrong when we did it. We know what's wrong when we try to justify it. And it's human nature to do so, to try to do things our own way. And then it goes, by faith he forsook Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king, for, for he endured, seeing him who was invisible. So here we have, he murders this Egyptian, and then he runs for his life. You know, uh, he lives in fear of Pharaoh, wanting to kill him for killing a soldier who was beating a Hebrew. And then if you know this, we just... In one verse, we're going to skip 40 years. <laughs> he goes into Midian, dwells there for 40 years, learning to be humble. And then, one night, he sees God. He sees the bush, the burning bush, that doesn't burn. This has got to be something that's kind of an amazing thought. You know, we've all seen fires and everything, and, you know, and we know that things crumble in the flame. He sees a bright fire out there. 
and decides, well, I've got to go find out what's caused this fire, what's going on, because he's watching this fire. It's not spreading. The bush doesn't seem to be going away, and I don't know how long he watched it, you know, before he decided there, but he says, I've got to go look at this. And gets there, and God speaks to him from the bush. Now, this has got to be something that's a little, you know, interesting. You know, you're out there taking care of your sheep. You know, for most shepherds, nothing ever seems to happen. They're just going through the routine of watching their sheep all night. Every once in a while, a wolf shows up or a lion or a bear or something. You have to drive it off. But for the most part, their life was pretty boring life. You just sit out there watching your sheep. Dumb sheep, rescuing a sheep here and there because it's doing something stupid. And the one night he sees this bush on fire somewhere across the field. You know, no lightning, nothing, just a bush burning. And then it never goes out. Doesn't go out, doesn't spread. And he goes out and checks it. And God speaks to him. Now, that would be something that's a little freaky in and of itself. God speaking to him. And you know the story he's called to called, told to go rescue his people and all that. We're not going to get into all that tonight, but he finally gets obedient. And then we jump into, through faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, lest he that destroys the firstborn should touch them. The last plague of the ten plagues on Egypt. Pharaoh had kept saying, you know, toward the end, I'll let you go, but you've got to do this. I'll let you go, but. And I go, no, we have to have everything. And the last plague was the death of the firstborn child. Firstborn, well, the firstborn of all living things, animals as well, that's not under the protection of the blood. And Pharaoh says, get out of Egypt. <laughs> now, again, the, the ten plagues were a mighty, and we've talked about this way, way back when we did it, the ten plagues were an attack on all of the gods of Egypt by, God, by the god of the Hebrews. He attacked the god of the Nile, the god, you know, all the different gods of Egypt were attacked by the ten plagues to show that the God of the Hebrews was stronger than all of their gods. And now death came and wiped out the firstborn, including Pharaoh's son and everybody else in there, unless they were in a house with the blood of the Passover lamb protecting them. Again, the picture of Jesus dying on the cross because they put blood on the top sides and the bottom of the, the door so that it forms a cross. They were protected by the cross and for foretelling the blood of Jesus because Jesus was going to be the Passover lamb for the world that allowed people to be rescued through his blood. And this is that whole picture that's being brought out. The Passover lamb, the perfect lamb that protects against death. And then he goes, and by, by faith they passed through the Red Sea on dry land, which the Egyptians, a saying to do, were drowned. Now I think this is kind of interesting. We talked a little bit about this last week or the week before or sometime, I don't remember, but you know, 
By faith, they walked through the Red Sea. Now, even if they were at the, that little land bridge on the Red Sea that's you know, 100, 150 feet down, that's a big wall of water on both sides that you're walking through. It's also wide enough that you cannot see the other side when you start. So you've got the Egyptians on one side, the, the pillar of fire keeping the Egyptians from coming in. The Red Sea's opened up in front of you, and Moses is saying, go through. And you're going, uh, this wall is pretty high. What's holding this water up in the first place? And does it go all the way through to the other side? They had to go out by faith. Not knowing for sure what was going to be on the other side. Not knowing for sure that that water was going to hold up. And I don't know what, you know, we've seen all kinds of pictures of it. I don't know if it was a nice clear, clear cut where there, or was it so windy that it was all frothy and everything. I've always kind of pictured it being nice and clear, you know, like an aquarium so they could see the fish swimming along and, and all of that, you know, like, you know just my, my crazy picture. But it could very easily have been walls that were frothed up and they couldn't see anything, which would be actually scarier because, you know, you're looking at it, you know, any time falling down on you. It took a lot of faith to go in with 100, 150 foot walls, maybe more, of water. Going to go to a side that you're not even sure that this wall is going to support you all the way to the end. Yeah, because you could be halfway through and it. And it all of a sudden stopped. It's like a bridge that throws a box. Yeah, you know, you get halfway across and all of a sudden there's no more, no more, no more tunnel through the, through the sea. All you know is Moses told us to go through and Pharaoh's out there trying to kill us. And having to go out by faith, not knowing. You know, when we think about the steps of faith people made in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's an amazing thing to think about all the faith steps that are made. Not mentioned here, you know, I think so often of Peter when they're out on the sea and he goes, God, uh, Jesus, if that's you, bid me to come out on the water. And he says, come. I don't think I would have. And Peter steps out of a boat, which is crazy enough, in an, even if there wasn't a storm. But he steps out in the middle of a storm, <laughs> out of a boat, and walks on water. That is a lot of faith. And he was doing really good until he kind of looked around him and saw the wind and the rain and the storms and the, and the waves. And you could know exactly what he was thinking. What am I doing out of the boat in the middle of a storm? What am I doing out of the boat, period, in the middle of the lake? <laughs> and he started sinking. But you can almost picture the, the mindset because that's how we would have been. All right, there's a lot of wind and rain out here. What am I standing out here in the middle of the lake for? What am I standing out in the middle of the lake, period, for? And his faith dwindled. That's hard to picture because he's walking on the water. He's already doing it. And then his faith passed, you know, was driven away. How many times do we step out in faith? We're having successes. And all of a sudden we start thinking... Uh, there's no way this can be happening. I'm not smart enough for these successes to be happening. I'm not good enough for these successes to be happening. And all of a sudden, things start to flounder because 
we start looking and walking by sight rather than by faith. The children of Israel were walked through the Red Sea. I've pictured this so many times in my days, you know, how much faith did it take to walk through the Red Sea? And the ground is dry. If, you, if you've ever gone out to the beach or played around with the water, the, the ground at the bottom of that water is not dry. You go out on the beach after high tide, that sand and that, and that area is muddy and, and messy. And it says they walked across on dry land. There's so many miracles in that whole statement that it's an amazing thing to look at. And they made it to the other side. And when Pharaoh drove his army into the Red Sea to follow them, the water collapsed and drowned Pharaoh's entire army and wiped out. And we had the fall of Egypt when, the, when their army was wiped out. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look at faith. Lord, help us to walk in faith, to trust you in all that we do and to not walk in our own understanding, but to be willing to walk in what you call us to do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10.9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.